Okay. I will pull your attention back up here. It is fantastic to hear all the conversations going on. And it's good to see you. I was given some feedback a couple weeks ago that perhaps I am not at the height where I can stand down here when I talk. Um, and that some people would prefer if we stood up there. We'll, we'll think about that. But hopefully, hopefully you can, yeah, write it on the comment card. Um, <laughs> okay, so. We are in the season of Lent, and during the season of Lent, we have been digging into a series that we have called The Postures of the People. Uh, we've been spending time reflecting on some of the postures found in the life of Jesus, as well as those who followed most closely with him when he was on earth. So we've looked at the, the postures of the courage to risk. Uh, we looked at the posture of awe and adoration. And last week, we looked at the posture of vulnerability. And now today, we are looking at posture of protection and awareness. So we're specifically looking at what it means to create a culture and to be a community that provides protection and advocates for the vulnerable. So for this second half of the service today, we'll be doing something a little bit different. We're going to split it in two parts, and we're going to spend a bit of time digging into this, like the theological importance of this posture, um, looking at this what does it mean to provide protection, and why do we care about it? Uh, and then we're going to have a chance to get a little window into our current protection policies as a community. So some of you are aware of that. If you've been volunteering with our kids or youth, you're aware that we do have some protection policies that we follow. Um, but we, we really felt like it would be valuable for our whole community to at least be aware of some of those policies and, and what we actually talk about when we invite people into that training. So we're going to take some time in a few minutes to go through some of that as well. Before we move on, however, we do want to provide a, a trigger warning and an opportunity for you to opt out of this conversation if you feel like you need to. Um, that especially when we move into the summary of some of our child protection policies, we will be discussing the topic of different kinds of abuse, specifically physical and sexual abuse. And we believe that part of creating a protected and safer space, a safer community, is by naming some of these risks and realities. Um, however, we also know that this can be heavy and even triggering for some of us. And so if at any point you feel like you need to slip out, um, feel free to do that. The library is open, and that space is available for you if you need some quiet space. Um, as well as do feel free to reach out to us as well after the service if you feel like you need some support in, um, in walking through some of that as well. So why? should we care about providing a protected space for vulnerable people, for children specifically? This might feel like an obvious answer. We probably all could answer this quite easily. Um, but the answer is more than just because it's the right ethical thing to do, or even because our law or insurance company requires it, although any one of those answers would be enough. As Christ followers seeking to follow in the postures of Christ, we have an even greater why. Jesus cares about this deeply, and we can see it um, all through Scripture and through his life and through even before Jesus was on earth. We see God's heart in this, protecting the vulnerable. And as Laura Phillips describes it, we see the tender, protective, relentless love toward children that Jesus 
showed us. We see through the life of Jesus that God's heart is for children, for protecting, loving, and welcoming them into his kingdom. And there are lots of examples of this through scripture, um, but we're going to look at one particular verse this morning that probably is quite familiar with, to most of you. Um, it, it is the verse that's often used when we talk about this subject, uh, but there's some real depth to it, and so we're going to dig into it a little bit this morning. It's Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. There's this word that is used in this translation anyway, indignant. Jesus was indignant. And I heard this a few years ago, and it stayed with me, and I, this week I went back to, to look it up just to confirm, was this really what the Greek word meant? And this, the word that's used here, the Greek word, it can be translated as two separate words much grieved. Jesus was much grieved. There's something deeper there than being angry or annoyed or frustrated. This indignance what came from a place of much grief. This language of grief resonated. I think it probably resonates for many of us. When we hear stories of the vulnerable being abused, being pushed away, or being given a distorted message of who Jesus is or how he welcomes them. When the actions of the powerful not only stand in the way, but at times push away and cause harm to the vulnerable, we often feel this feeling of indignance, or at least we should. This feeling that goes beyond just anger and can be better described as much grief. And the response of Jesus in this moment, this moment of indignance and grief, was to advocate, to advocate for and stretch out and protect the children. He said, let them come to me and do not hinder them. So not only did he make a point to protect and advocate for the vulnerable, but he reminded his followers that this is who the kingdom belongs to. This was crucial and the most valuable work. Jesus literally said, hey guys, this is what it's all about. Not only am I indignant, not only am I much grieved that you have pushed them away from me, but I'm also grieved that you missed the point. This is what my kingdom's all about. Jesus didn't say, Ah, uh, it's okay, guys. I've got some extra time. Just let the kids come. We've, we still have an hour till lunch. It's, it's all good. The kids can hang out for a little bit. No, this was a passionate response from Jesus. He was grieved. He felt the weight of this actually being the whole point. It was like he was saying to them, if you don't protect the vulnerable, if you don't welcome these children and then receive the kingdom just like them, you're missing it. So we believe this is important work, and this posture of protection is one that we want to reflect in our community 
as we seek to care deeply about the things that Jesus modeled for us and taught us. So when we hear about the many stories of abuse happening within the broader church, and then sometimes the cover-up that happens in those spaces as well, we are left wondering how can this happen so often if it's something that we all agree as Christ followers that we should care about. How can this happen so often? So I'm going to invite Brian up. Some of you have met Brian. Brian is a part of our transition team, and I'm going to let him introduce himself a little bit to you, and then we're going to ask him a couple of questions specifically around this topic. So, um, yeah, my name is Brian Pingelli. I've been working for 30 years in various capacities in churches as a youth pastor, as a, a camp director. Um, I am, uh, have a master's degree in counseling from Tyndale Seminary and uh, now work for the school board as a child and youth worker. So uh, I've helped write a lot of child protection policies and implement them in a lot of churches. Um, and yeah, so. Awesome. Okay. So Brian, why do we need to care about this specifically in church settings? I think churches are, um, it's really important in churches. Number one, because the statistics tell us that one in three people before the age of 18 will experience abuse of some kind. That means if you look around, we've got a lot more than three people here. So even if it doesn't happen in the churches, we have people in our churches who are experienced this or who have experienced this. And so many of the churches, when we started to set these policies, they would say, oh, we don't need this, that one. We know everyone here, we're small, we're a family church, you know. Even in those churches, I have had people disclose abuse to me. Every single church I have worked in, I have had people disclose abuse to me. Um, and every, almost, I won't say every church, the majority of churches I have worked in in my career, there have been incidents within the church that, uh, where boundaries have been crossed, whether with adults or uh, certainly with vulnerable individuals within the church, sometimes children, sometimes older. But this is happening in our churches. So based on your experience and kind of what you're seeing as well, what do you think makes us vulnerable? And I always say us, the church, um, to abuse happening here within the church. I think there's a couple things. Um, number one, a lot of churches are very uncomfortable talking about issues of abuse, issues of power. Um, a lot of churches have very hierarchical structures where powers are held by people above, and you are taught not to question what happens, and specifically taught not to talk about sex or sexuality. Um, I myself was abused when I was eight years old. It happened at school, it wasn't at church, but church was the first place I tried to talk about it. And when I told my Sunday school teacher in my faltering language, what they said was, that's dirty, we don't talk about that here. And it took me probably another decade before I felt safe disclosing again. So um, when you can't talk about it, then you can't tell when it's happening, and then it's more likely to happen. Um, and when you have power and balance built into your structures, it makes it hard to stop. 
on the other side of that, churches have seen that power imbalance, and then many churches said, well, we're not going to be like those churches that have you know, the strong power imbalances. We're going to build safe, easygoing churches, but then those churches become places where you can talk about things freely, but there's no boundaries, and no one wants to say, no, that's not a good thing that I'm seeing there, because they don't want to look like they're part of those other churches. And so they actually create spaces where there is, it is ripe for abuse um, because they don't have boundaries and they're not talking about that there are limits on things as well. Yeah, that's really important. So beyond safety and protection policies, some of those you just talked about, mm. how do you think we could create a culture where we reduce the risk of abuse happening in our community? I think there's a, a couple things that are number four. Number one, we have to create environments where we can talk about it. We need to be able to talk about it. No one is comfortable, no one enjoys talking about it, but when we talk about it, when we name it, when we share stories about it, it takes the secrecy and the hiddenness away. Mm -hmm. And when, when it is talked about and comes to light, there is protection in that. Um, number two, we need to create genuine spaces where people can talk about the struggles in their life. Um, we like to imagine that everyone who crosses a boundary in this area is a, a predator who's specifically out looking for people and we think we would know what they would look like if we met them. Um, and I have, I, in the many years I've worked in the church and I've seen boundary violations, I'd say only about 25 were people who came into the job looking to do that or came in as volunteers looking to do that. Um, in most cases, I would say they were people uh, who were not doing well in their own life, were very ashamed of how they were feeling, but trying to maintain a look and view. And when they weren't having their needs met in legitimate ways uh, and couldn't talk about it, they went and found they crossed boundaries to try and meet those needs. And so when we create safe places for people to talk about the realities of what's going on in their lives, um, then we actually make healthier churches for everybody. We need to create environments where leaders can say, I'm burned out, I can't do this anymore, and step back, or I need time to work on my marriage or work on whatever else is going on in my life to be honest about where they're feeling things. Now, please do not hear this as making excuses. There is never an okay thing, uh, an okay reason or an excuse to cross a boundary or, or to um, uh, do something like that. But when we create healthy environments with healthy people, we both make it safer for everyone in the church and we also those that are in unhealthy and are targeting people will stand out more and are more easily identified. Yeah. Um, the other thing I, I would like to say with churches, one of the other things that makes us vulnerable is how dependent we are on volunteers. Um, because churches are always, we have too few people, we have, we, they feel the stress of we want to run this program, but there's not enough people doing it. Sometimes churches will turn a blind eye to warning signs because they just need someone to run this ministry right now, whether that's paid staff or a volunteer. And when there is that feeling of 
um, we don't have enough, then we put ourselves in vulnerable places. So the more people we have that are sharing the load on things, the, the easier it is to point, to realize when there's danger. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I've seen that happen in different contexts too, even where um, we have policies that would say maybe this number of people need to be in the classroom or we would like you to be part of our community for six months. You can get to know us. We'll get to know you before you start volunteering with our kids and youth. And then we get in this point of, like Brian said, a little bit of desperation. Like, oh, well, maybe we can just, oh, come on in. Like, yeah, you're willing, come on in. And, um, and the importance of really following these policies for a reason, that we have them in place for a reason. Yeah. And the truth is that when we, when we have these clear policies and awareness around protection, we can actually live in a much more um, free way with one another because we know we have this net to catch us. We know we have these things in place. And so um, one time I was taking some plan to protect training and I remember the trainer saying these words, they, they stuck with me since then. She said, we put these policies in place because we want to be able to assume the best of one another, but be prepared for the worst. And so then when we have this, these protection policies in place, we actually can live in that place of assuming the best of one another and not having to feel like we're on like constant alert um, with people walking through the door or where are our children and, and those kinds of questions. And I've actually seen this play out in a church that we were part of in Ottawa. When we came, they were... Um, about seven years old and had started in someone's living room and had grown kind of your typical church plant story. And um, they were at a point where they had a lot of kids. They're, they didn't really have a lot of structure around the way the program is run or a plan to protect policies. And, and there was that, you could sense that tension, a little bit of like fear starting to emerge because people weren't sure what was happening with the kids. And, um, and once we put these things in place, everyone could just kind of take a deep breath and know, oh, okay, like we, we know we have these things, we know we're actually following them, and we know as a community we're committed to this. And so we can now live in, in this little bit more of a, a freedom that we so desire. So with that, I'm going to ask Sarah VK to come on up. And um, Sarah has put together, back last year, was it two years ago? I don't know, a while ago, um, she did the hard work of putting together some slides to get all of our volunteers, as we were coming out of COVID and kind of back into person, um, she got everybody back up to speed on our plan to protect policies. And so she's just going to walk us through a quick summary. This is not an extensive description of all of the policies, um, but just a quick summary to give everybody a window into what does this training actually look like? What kind of things do we go through? Um, so if you are parents or guardians, you, you know the people who are kind of caring for your kids right now have walked through these kinds of things. Uh, and if you're interested in taking the full training, there are opportunities for you to do that as well. Thank you so much, Mel. Yes, so I'm Sarah Van Krusen, and uh, as many of you fondly refer to me uh, in this community, Sarah VK, because my last name is too intimidating to say out loud. <laughs> Um, but yeah, as Mel said, we're just going to be skimming the surface today, just looking at a few slides um, on how we protect our vulnerable people in at Elevation. 
So some of the things that we talk about in our training uh, are safe classrooms and how we keep our classrooms safe. So we have lots of policies around um, numbers to ensure that there's a decent ratio of volunteers to children. And the younger the kids, the more volunteers we have, we need. Um, there's also policies around how many legal adults need to be um, in the room. Um, we talk a lot about an open door policy, which is always a good thing, but sometimes it's also mandatory. Um, there's a few examples up there. One of the examples that I'll talk about is if, say, there are two adult volunteers in the room and one of them has to go escort a group of kids to the bathroom. That would be a time that, um, because there would only be one adult in the room, we would have to have an open door. And we are lucky we have these fabulous half doors here at Elevation so we can keep the kids in but still have the open door uh, policy in effect. Um, so that's what would happen there to make sure that neither the kids or the volunteers are put into a vulnerable situation. Um, we also talk a lot, we can go to the next slide, um, about other, we have policies around a lot of other things. For example, transporting children. Uh, lots of times we will start in the gym and then go upstairs or when the weather's nicer, we'll off, we often like to get outside with the kids. And there are policies that we talk about in order to make sure that kids are accounted for and we're doing this as safely as possible. We also have policies in place about emergencies, things like head counts and buddying up and procedures for different types of emergencies. We talk about health and safety in our training as well. Um, things like if a child comes to our program and is displaying signs of sickness, unfortunately we can't take them into our care. Things around medication um, that you know only parents are allowed to administer med medication or volunteers are not. Uh, as well as other um, procedures around dealing with cuts and blood. These are all things we talk about. And also, we share the space upstairs with St. John's Daycare. They have been so lovely to let us use their beautiful classrooms, uh, but there are also beginning and end of program procedures to ensure that both parties can enjoy a clean and hygienic classroom. So we talk about those as well. Other things that we talk about in our training are appropriate and inappropriate touch when we're volunteering with kids. And like, uh, like Mel was saying, obviously, we hope that these are all common sense things to our volunteers, but we don't want to take anything for granted. We don't want to take any chances, and so we talk about hard things. Um, this is one of those topics. It's, and yeah, there are, there's a handful of examples on each of these lists. This is not an exhaustive list. There are other things that we talk about as well, and we go through them specifically and make sure that we're all on the same page. We also talk about discipline in our training. Thankfully, uh, many of our volunteers have kids or have had children of their own, and a lot of this will be second nature, but a little refreshing never hurts. Uh, in our training, we talk about preventative and remedial discipline, but mostly we talk about being proactive in our interactions with the kids, making them feel loved, respected, and valued goes a long way to encouraging cooperation in our classrooms. And also, just like in any other classroom setting, um, setting expectations early also um, is a big thing. You know, we want to make sure that everyone's on the same page in Kids Quest, that we're kind, that we keep our hands and feet to ourselves, that we listen to the speaker, and all those fun, fun rules that we want to make sure all the kids are on the same page as us with. In our training here at Elevation, we also have policies around washrooms. Uh, we want to protect our kids and our volunteers, so we have policies in place to make sure that a volunteer and a child are not alone one-on-one. -on -one. For example, younger kids, uh, there will either be two volunteers accompanying younger children to the bathroom, or if it 
has to be one, again, if there's only two adults in the classroom and there has to be only one, again, open door policy. And the volunteer remains in the hallway, which is usually the way it goes. Volunteers stay in the hallway. And same with nursery. Uh, we expect parents and caregivers to do all the diaper changing. So we take your cell number for a reason. If your child has a diaper they need changed, the volunteer will be texting you frantically. And if they can't get a hold of you, one of them will likely be poking their head around in the back looking for you because that is our policy in order to keep uh, people from vulnerable situations. And also on the next slide, I think, yes, we also have sign in and out procedures, which you all hear about very regularly here, that um, kids pre-kindergarten to grade two need a parent or guardian to sign them in and out so that we can make sure that all of our kids are accounted for and where they need to be. And yes, as Brian talked a lot about here, it's also important to remember that we are susceptible to abuse. Um, and it's important for our volunteers to be informed and aware of the different types of abuse and how to identify possible signs of each form of abuse. So we talk about the definition of abuse and the three forms, physical, uh, emotional, and sexual. And we will also look at specific examples of possible signs of abuse under each category. Um, and, and that's on the next slide. But they're not listed, but we, in our training, um, talk about possible signs of physical, emotional, sexual abuse, as well as neglect, so that our volunteers are, um, have had that and can recognize it if, um, if it if it shows itself. And yeah, so with that, I'm gonna call Mel back up. She's going to talk, I think, just a little bit about the final bit of our training that we usually talk about and the duty to report. I'm gonna actually let Brian speak to that and then I'll conclude. All right, uh, duty to report. All of us, it's all of our jobs to make sure that children and vulnerable people in our churches are safe. And so all of us have a duty to report. That's a, do, a moral duty to report, but there's actually a legal duty to report. As an adult, if you see signs of abuse, it is your job to uh, report it. So under Canadian law, any person who has reasonable grounds to believe that a child or children is in need of protection is legally required to report the matters to a social worker in the local office of Family and Children's Services. Any person who knowingly fails to report in these circumstances in violation of the law and may be found to have committed an offense. Um, even if it wasn't the law, I think there's a moral enforcement. Like to me, if I found out that I had seen signs and not reported it, and I found that a child was being hurt, the, the weight of that that I would carry um, would be tremendous. Taking care of our children is so important. So if you have any concerns, you as an individual are actually the one who should call family and children's services. Often churches used to do it where they would report to a ministry leader and the ministry leader would call FACS or, or whoever. Um, that is not what they want. Uh, and it leads to places where churches will protect themselves because some churches never passed it on. So it is your duty. If you want, you can talk to the ministry lead and they will like call with you <laughs> and walk beside you so you feel support and you have someone who understands the system who can, who can support you in that. Um, but it is your duty to report. And when they are asking questions, they will always want to contact the person who first saw it. So even if a ministry leader 
um, reports it, they'll say, well, we need to talk to this person. So it comes back to all of us. We all have the duty here. So just one point of clarification that um, I forgot to say earlier, and that is some of you are familiar with the term plan to protect. We've used that term quite a bit in this context as well. And we're going to start actually using a different term, and we just wanted to clarify why we're doing that. So plan to protect is an actual trademark, an, it's an organization that you can um, subscribe to or you can become a member of. And we currently are not a member of Plan to Protect as an organization, but we have adopted their policies. So we technically cannot actually say we are a Plan to Protect church because we don't have that um, agreement with them. Um, and so on top of that, we've also been talking as a leadership for a while now, and especially within our transition team, we want to dig into some of this. What does it look like to actually expand those policies beyond our children and youth to other vulnerable populations in our community as well? And so we're going to start using the term, it's a little bit more of a mouthful, but Vulnerable People's Protection Plan, VPPP, we can call it, as our little like inside language. Um, but so when you hear VPPP or Vulnerable People's Protection Plan, that is what we're referring to. We might still slip up and, and say plan to protect, and that's okay. We have grace for one another. But as far as what we are presenting, um, that is clarification around that. So to conclude, we, um, we just want to say thank you, first of all, for, for being present for this conversation. Like we said, we really believe this is important for our community to, to all both hear this information and also hold it and, um, and be on this path together of providing protection for the vulnerable among us. So we want to say thank you for being here. Um, if you are interested in taking the, the entire training, even if you're not sure that you're ready to um, commit to a regular volunteer schedule or rotation, but you're, you're, maybe something was sparked in you and you really feel like, yeah, I care about this, I wanna dig deeper. There are a couple training dates coming up, so please do reach out. You can reach out to Sue and she can get you in, um, that, the information about when those dates are coming and we'd walk through the entire policy. If you have any questions about any of this, please do reach out to Brian, Sarah, myself, we're all available to chat. So let's pray. God, we are just so aware of your presence here with us. We feel both the weight of this responsibility and at the very same time, we feel your presence here with us. We know that this is important to you. We know that you care about this deeply. We know that you walk with us. I pray, God, that you would continue to give us wisdom, give us guidance. As we extend grace to one another and walk forward and try to do what we can to create both a culture and a community that deeply cares about the things that you deeply care about. We know that your kingdom is found in these spaces with the vulnerable, with those 
needing protection and advocacy and awareness. So we lean into those spaces. And God, I pray for all of the neighbors groups who will be meeting today in various places across the city and outside of the city. Um, we just pray for deep connection, for fun, for relationships to be built. And we're so grateful for these spaces where we can gather together with our neighbors. And, um, and whether it's over a meal or a walk through the woods or whatever we're doing, that your presence would be with us. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here. And we will see you next week. Again, if you don't know what to do about neighbors groups, talk to Sue. <laughs>